Hello, welcome back to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. We've got the UK in lockdown, more or less, with the coronavirus outbreak forcing the Prime Minister to bring in measures which we all thought were unimaginable just days ago. In a televised address watched by 27 million people on Monday evening, most of those on the BBC, by the way, Boris Johnson had one message, stay at home, protect the NHS and save lives. A simple message, maybe, but one which still prompted a lot of confusion and many questions. Above all, who was supposed to be at work and who wasn't? Parliament grappled with that question on its own behalf, finally deciding to rise early. And one of the government's final acts was to turn the coronavirus bill, which gives it a sweeping range of emergency powers, into law. So, as the UK goes into hibernation, duration unknown... What role will the state now play? How far do its powers now extend? And with Parliament, ministers and journalists all sequestered away, how can this government be scrutinised and held to account? Before we start, a quick reminder about our new sister podcast, IFG Live, where you can hear all the panels, talks and updates that ordinarily we'd be taking place in our London headquarters. You can hear those in the comfort of your own home. And so this week you can listen to my discussion with Shami Chakrabarti, Labour's Shadow Attorney General, plus an IFG panel of our very own experts, yes, we're very proud to have them, discussing Boris Johnson's first 100 days in power, 50 of those that went to plan and 50 of them in this new world. So you can find IFG Live on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get Inside Briefing, or at instituteforgovernment.org.uk. With that, let's get started on today's podcast. Joining me are two of the IFG's finest parliamentary observers. Hi to our Deputy Director, Hannah White. Hello. Hannah, where are you and how have you been? Uh, well, I can report that my husband and I have um, both managed to get our heads around column subtraction, which is a key part now of primary maths, which uh, was not done, or we didn't used to do it the same way when we were there. So, uh, yeah, we're all learning a lot. A nightmare of new techniques. Yeah. Joe, um, Joe Marshall is one of our researchers at the IFG. Welcome, Joe. Hi, thank you for having me. Joe, your old colleagues in the Treasury will have been working flat out to get these new measures out. How are they getting on? Have you heard? They do sound like they have been very busy. A lot of them have now started working from home as well, obviously, which I think getting used to um, trying to access everything they need has, like for everyone, been a bit of a challenge. But they have been very busy. And um, I think those dealing with Parliament are glad that they've gone into recess for a bit, a bit of respite. I'm absolutely delighted to be joined today by Paul War, Executive Editor, Politics at the Huffington Post. Paul, are you thriving with this lockdown? Well, I have to say, Bronwyn, I'm slowly just getting used to the idea of um, working from home because I've been in the unusual position of being able to go into work. I've been going into Parliament regularly until... I think Tuesday, really. Um, and so it, unlike everyone else who's probably a bit used to this thing, I'm, I'm slowly finding my feet. I have to say... You're, you're in day two of it, not week two. Well, yeah. precisely. Um, so any tips are welcome <laughs> from your end, that's for sure. Uh, uh, there'll be floods and floods of those. But I, I'm just interested, what was it like on the last day in Parliament? Well, the the interesting thing is that actually um, most MPs are being pretty sensible about social distancing in the chamber. They all accepted relatively quickly that the idea that, that not just how they organise themselves, but how they organise Parliament is going to have to slowly change, or in some cases, rapidly change. What I found interesting is that um, in terms of the organisation itself, the Speaker clearly 
was pushing for a, it, what looked like an early recess. The government wanted to hold out as much as possible. I got the impression from Jacob Rees-Mogg and his team, they really didn't want to do this. And similarly, they'd want to come back on April 21st. But it feels as though the Speaker is responding to the, the, the wider community in, in, in Parliament. There's concerns about staff and others, but also just how Parliament uh, reconfigures itself to cope with this remote working. They're not quite there yet. And I think um, I think certainly as far as Lindsay Hall's concerned, they're, they're going to do some rapid work on that. And we can talk about that in more detail about how they do yeah, it. I'm fascinated by that. And we will absolutely pick up on that, on this question of how Parliament's going to change. But let me just ask you one thing. You took part in a digital press conference with Matt Hancock and uh, earlier this week and described the uh, health secretary as looking like a vicar in a hostage video, which the Today programme picked up. <laughs> Was it that painful? Well, actually, I was describing myself. Was it yourself? I'm sorry. Yes. 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 Um, I've, I've been looking at him differently the whole week. <laughs> yeah. But um, the, the curious thing was, it, it was actually um, a pretty smooth operation. Um, it was the very first digital press conference. You got, I got the feeling that Hancock has been desperate to do that kind of thing for a very long time, even before this crisis. Yeah. Um, but it did work. Uh, we uh, are effectively organising ourselves as a parliamentary lobby as well, working closely with number 10 to work out a rotor for questions to make sure that every outlet gets a fair sh- shout and more importantly that, uh, that the questions that we ask are getting properly answered because right now everybody's got so many questions members of the public whether it's about relationships you know that go to the deputy medical officer um on, on boyfriends and girlfriends or whether it's much more important stuff about you know what the government's doing in terms of uh, protective equipment so uh, that that format did work uh, my worry is that they may restrict the number of questions uh, fortunately we didn't have to submit our questions in advance that would have been a big no-no yeah no it always is um for, for journalists um we'll, we'll come back to, again to some of those points about just how you can fire questions at the government and, and get answers but let's start with this uh, decision um which you were referring to not surprising to allow mps and peers to leave parliament earlier than planned. Hannah, given that the Prime Minister's told people to stay at home and to keep their distance from each other, wasn't that, in fact, inevitable? I think so. It felt increasingly inevitable for me. Um, And when you think about the fact that MPs come from all over the country to sit in a room which is deliberately too small for them all, um, uh, that didn't seem to be a sustainable thing for them to keep doing when the rest of the country were being told to stay at least two metres away from each other. Deliberately too small for them all? How do you mean? Uh, well, when they rebuilt the Commons Chamber after the Second World War, after it was bombed in the Second World War, the, it was discussed whether they should make it, um, like lots of other legislatures, uh, bigger so that they could have space for everyone to have their own seat and even their own desk in some uh, legislatures. And I think, uh, well, at least apocryphally, it was Churchill who said no, he thought it would change the atmosphere and they should keep it um, uh, uh, the same size as before, which is too small for everyone to, to have a seat in. He liked the kind of crowded hubbub. He did. It wasn't in the days of, of, of coronavirus. Well, let me um, ask you these questions about scrutiny, which we were already touching on with, with Paul. Um, and they're kind of obvious. A huge bill giving the government unprecedented powers over all our lives. Some of it may be switched on, some of it may not, but we don't know. has been passed with only one day's scrutiny in the Commons. Should we be worried? Well, I mean, I think it's always risky to pass legislation rapidly. But in this case, obviously, 
the government felt it was really necessary and had done as much as it could, it sounds like, to talk to the opposition parties in advance um, and to tell them what would be coming. It was actually significantly amended during its passage. The government made amendments uh, on the basis of things that were uh, raised by MPs. So we saw uh, how that can happen really effectively in Parliament. Paul, I mean, we heard from Shami Chakrabarti earlier this week that, in fact, the government had been talking to the opposition uh, for some weeks about this legislation. Do you think, did you get much sense that the opposition was ever going to object to it or object to parts of it, maybe? Or well, just that this consensus was, was um, you know, inevitable? And, uh, consensus wasn't inevitable. Don't forget you're talking about Jeremy Corbyn as leader of the opposition, who doesn't particularly take the word Her Majesty's loyal opposition very seriously, not the loyal bit anyway. Um, and, it's his, and it's his last week, of course. Yes, indeed. Um, but the one big sticking point for, for Labour was the idea of sunset clauses and, and this six-month uh, attempt to go back at the legislation. Now, um, I know that the government were trying to dig in on that last week, but they had a change of heart because they could see just how all it would look if there wasn't a consensus on this bill and Labour were prepared to, to vote against if they hadn't had those sunset clauses and certainly the Lords too as you all know this is the big thing this is what the House of Lords unique selling point is you have sunset clauses on everything you know they make damn sure that they that they're in there for any kind of emergency legislation for renewal um, so I think the government were quite sensible to listen to that and as soon as that one big sticking point was out of the way the other things fell away. So, Joe, tell us exactly what, what is the sunset uh, on this legislation and what are, what are MPs' opportunities for reviewing it? So the sunset is basically the expiry date when most provisions in the bill cease to have effect. And the sunset still stuck at two years, which is what it was when the bill was introduced. But what has happened and what the government concession did was to introduce an opportunity for MPs to review the powers in the bill every six months and potentially vote against them. Um, it's not a complete catch-all because uh, they don't have an opportunity to amend those powers at the six-month interval. And if Parliament isn't sitting, that vote potentially might not happen and the powers would continue in effect. But they have got that six-month interval. There are a couple of other let's, bits. Let's just stick on that point for a second. So if Parliament isn't sitting, what chance do they get to review? I mean, should they have demanded that you know Parliament sit in some form? in order to have uh, enable that review to take place? At the moment, we're still expecting Parliament to come back after Easter. Um, and I think it's important to remember that even when Parliament's in recess, select committees can meet. So I think that the important thing going forward now is that MPs are going to be able to bring to Westminster, if only virtually, their experience and their understanding gained in their constituencies of how these powers are actually being used. Um, and then they'll be able to raise any issues that they um, identify in select committee hearings in those sorts of settings, even if the chamber itself isn't meeting. And the kind of things that people have been very worried about are, uh, for example, re uh, reducing the obligation on uh, local uh, local authorities or on the, uh, the National Health Service to provide, you know, to be sure that care is in place, um, say if people are discharged from hospital or re relaxing the um, requirements for, for two doctors to sign off a detention of someone under mental health legislation and, and, and so on. So these are the kind of things that the select committee could look at. Yes, exactly. And as I say, they can do that even when the house is in recess. It isn't a bar on that sort of activity. I think those points, it's also uh, worth mentioning that this government is under an obligation to report on its use of the powers every eight weeks. 
And that will also provide potentially an opportunity for MPs and the public more generally to look at how the government is using these powers. Um, although some of our IFG colleagues have pointed out that the government might want to make sure it actually explains its use of those powers in those reports, doesn't simply list whether it's used them or not. And Paul, what room do you feel you've got to challenge this? I mean, do these virtual press conferences work? In- I think they actually do. Um of course, we're all used to remote working in the media much more than many other people are. Um, the, the real drawback sometimes is, as you'll find out in this podcast, sometimes it's difficult to interrupt or cut across someone or to follow up with a question. Yes. Um, and, and when you're there I in said, the room... interrupting, yes. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Um, I found a very good example of this was last week when um, the Prime Minister riffed a bit, last, exactly a week ago today on, on the Thursday, when he, he invited us in to, to talk about about this turning the tide uh, within 12 weeks. And um, it it was as if he was just himself treading water before the next big announcement uh, from Rishi Sunak. And when he announced that, and then he said at the end of the press conference, well, how's how's this thing working for you? Is it okay? Is it okay? And he's in his classic call and response fashion. And it wasn't picked up by the by the TV, but I immediately said, "Well, it'll be okay as long as you allow us to ask questions." Um, uh, and, and yeah, that's not what you're supposed them. to say. His traditional call and response: you're supposed <laughs> to say yes or twenty thousand policemen or something. Yeah, exactly. So I think we'll miss a bit of that, the follow up questions and the and the cutting across from being in the room. But hey, you know, we've all got to deal with it. Do you feel that the Prime Minister himself is putting himself up for scrutiny? I mean, his statement to the nation. Um, was pre-recorded, was probably the better for that, but he hasn't really faced questions on that decision. Yeah, I thought it was pretty extraordinary that you you had him making that grand announcement to the country, you know, uh, 20-odd million viewers seeing it live at home, and then the following day, he didn't put himself up for a press conference. Uh, It was Matt Hancock. Uh, That was rather curious. Now, obviously, he's a very busy man. He's running the country trying to coordinate this response. I hope he is, indeed. But but, um, at the same time, you know, he's the one who's committed to these regular press conferences. To be fair, however, you know, I think he... I know people around him say actually he likes press conferences. He likes the cut and thrust of them. It's just a few people around him are slightly paranoid. It's a bit like uh, royal courtiers just being over over protective of their uh, charges, um, and they're the ones who want to reduce the scrutiny. Often, I find rather than him himself. Where do you think they are on the BBC? You suddenly got ministers uh, on the Today program, um, where, which they have been boycotting, and there's a sort of you know murmur going round about you know surely this is a reprieve for the BBC because the government needs it to get the, the message out. Well, I certainly think that the BBC have done such a good job, um, not just in terms of their news coverage, but their wider um, capability. You know, the CBBC, the the online bite size. Um, advice for kids who are taking exams or are worried about the the disruption to exams that the sort of wider corporate responsibility of the BBC has really come to the fore I think in the last few days and I think that really counts it strengthens the hands of those around the Prime Minister who were always worried about this attack on the BBC and thought it was pointless uh, and that it would be ultimately counterproductive so what also helps is that the BBC has called off its own staff cuts which it was desperately uh, trying to go through um, before this crisis. But the BBC does have a double problem. So it's 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 losing the, the income from having to delay the over 75s TV licence, that's about 80 million quid. Um, uh, and it's also having at the same time to postpone its, its uh, savings programme. So 
I think it's looking at quite a big bill and it might need some help, dare I say it, from, from government uh, over the next 12 months. It'd be an interesting uh, conversation. Of course, it's not scrapping the the uh, over seventy fives bill. It's um it's it's uh, it's just just postponing it. Something we might come back to in another program. Hannah, I wanted to ask you about what the consequences were for the way Parliament works. Of this is is this the end of MPs filing into these these crowded voting lobbies in person? Well, it certainly is for the time being, um, and we've already seen. Uh, some existing parliamentary mechanisms used to try to avoid that having to happen. Um, so votes being taken on the voices. So just from MPs shouting out in the chamber and the speaker taking a view on, on where the balance of the vote would fall. Um, and, you know, they could also make use of something called deferred divisions, which is basically voting on paper. But I think just like the IFG, Parliament will find that, you know, actually when they're forced to use different mechanisms to do things, they discover that actually some of them are quite useful. Some of, you know, the world doesn't fall in um, when you have to do something online for the first time. And provided that, you know, they people can be satisfied about the sort of safeguards that you need around some of the things that the Parliament might be doing using technology, I think this could be a really useful way to accelerate um, changes in Parliament, which can tend to be sort of relatively slow and relatively sort of traditionalist um, in changing the ways uh, that it does things. Joe, is there any democratic reason why Parliament couldn't work remotely, why MPs couldn't vote digitally from their constituencies? I think... As Hannah said, there are obviously some concerns about making sure that any technology that's used is secure, that uh, you know, we are confident that if MPs are voting, it is actually them voting. Um, those will obviously have to be taken into account. I think one of the really interesting things is the fact that other legislatures, particularly some younger legislatures, including in the UK, like the Senate or the, the Welsh Assembly or the Scottish Parliament, might actually be finding it easier to adapt to these new circumstances than the UK Parliament because they already have more modern ways of working. They already use things like voting buttons. They have better video conferencing capabilities. And so I think, as Hannah said, really uh, what this crisis is doing is galvanising a lot of reform, which has been talked about in the UK Parliament for a long time, but has often not got anywhere very quickly. But so can Parliament actually start holding committees right away and sittings remotely or are MPs going to be um, like the rest of us have been scrabbling around for double double plugs and bits of connection and, and headphones and so and whatever? There has been this morning the Health and Social Care Select Committee has been holding a, uh, a uh, hearing using teleconferencing technology, which isn't available live stream, but will be available on Parliament Live TV, the sort of TV parliamentary uh, service um, afterwards. So we have seen some quite quick action to take use of some of these technologies. And that was something the House agreed to, was asked to agree to earlier this week. So the committees were given the power uh, to have a meeting where only the chair or only one member of the committee would be in the room. Everyone else would be participating uh, electronically. And also the House agreed that uh, committees could report, um, could send their, you know, their conclusions to the House without having physically met. So the, as long as the chair was satisfied that everyone had been consulted and had agreed, um, even if that had happened you know, via other technologies, the telephone uh, or the internet, um, then the chair could bring re reports forward to the House. So that's another important thing to mean that committees can uh, go about their work without having to physically meet. And Paul, just to 
pivot a bit at the end of this section. Um, I really wanted to ask you about uh, Jeremy Corbyn's last day in Parliament on Wednesday, uh, last day in Parliament as leader of the Labour Party, that is. And I guess we're going to have to wait for the big Corbyn evaluation. How did he do? Um, but do you think a new Labour leader is really going to change the, the debate on all this? Well, I, I think what will be interesting will be just how Keir Starmer, and let's be honest, it will be Keir Starmer. If it's not, hold me to it, pin me against the wall and, and pelt me with rotten tomatoes. Um, Keir Starmer, how he handles the post-Corbyn era will be really interesting. When Keir Starmer does finally stand up for his first PMQs, he will stand up in a very, very unusual atmosphere, this sense of national sort of uh, crisis, but also togetherness. And he's he's so far played it quite well. He stood back from the debate. He's only made timed interventions where he wants to say something significant. He's not been constantly carping. He's, he's He's been seen as a relatively responsible figure. And that brings me back to what I said earlier, you know, this idea of you are the leader of Her Majesty's loyal opposition. I think that loyal bit will probably be there a bit more. Um, he's got the advantage that the crisis means that he can make the case more for the bits of Corbynism that some people might want to rally around, not just within his party, which is, you know, suspending borrowing, normal borrowing rules, the idea of a, a, a closer state intervention in lots of areas of public life, whether it's the railways, it might even be the airlines at some point in the near future. Um, that will make it easier for him politically, I think. But it will be, I think what will be the real test is just how he then uses his new position to criticise Boris Johnson directly. Well, I, wanted, I wanted to ask you about this because I know I'm not going to throw rotten tomatoes at you, but um, but just a couple more questions. Do you think Labour has been handicapped by not having its new leader in place during uh, the budget and then the coronavirus escalation? In a strange way, I don't think it has because actually, precisely because there's been a need for... Um, a fair degree of consensus, which Labour has provided normally through John, John Ashworth, who's been working very closely with Matt Hancock. The Shadow Health Secretary. Yeah, because, because they've got in place that sense of joint responsibility, um, I think it's been a bit easier for, for Jeremy Corbyn to then occasionally say, actually, can I push you harder on this? Can I push you harder on that? Now, as we all know, Jeremy Corbyn isn't the best performer at PMQs or hasn't been, but I thought this week in his, his valedictory uh, performance. Actually, he did very well. He asked all the right questions, um, all the right issues, whether it was workers' protection for the NHS, whether it was even what we've just been talking about, remote working and scrutiny of parliament. Very important issues which he raised and tried to keep Johnson on his toes. So to be fair to him, I think actually he, he's made it slightly easier for, for Starmer to follow him. What will be interesting for Starmer is just how he negotiates this now, because he's got to constantly be seen as uh, not just responsible, but also someone who could do a better job. And that will be... And it's, it's, it's difficult, isn't it? Because you've got um, a purportedly uh, you know, right of centre government taking up a vast amount of space on the political spectrum, um, uh, which it was already doing even before coronavirus hit, was shoveling out money in all kinds of ways and really appropriating quite a bit of the Labour manifesto. And you've suddenly got them you know, running... Um, support for much of the country, um, taking on responsibility for the railways, uh, perhaps, uh, the, 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 this this kind of thing. Doesn't that shut out Labour from this discussion? 
Well, it's certainly, I mean, a, a question worth asking. What is Labour for in an era when the Tories are spending so much money and borrowing so much money and intervening in the state so directly? What's Labour for? The answer, I think, will probably be, look, to keep the government on their toes about what, what their values are in politics. And you've seen that in recent weeks. So Labour have been, been the ones that straight away pick on the fact that um, Rishi Sunak didn't do anything for renters straight away, didn't do anything for self-employed straight away. Well, you may get round to that this week. Exactly. I mean, that, oh, that, that one is complicated. Yeah. yeah. I mean, all of this, they are phenomenally complex, but the fact that they didn't say anything about it and said, they could, the, Sunak could have parked it and said, look, we, we, we realise the self-employed is really difficult, we'll get back to you. We realise renters is really difficult, we'll get back to you. Or we realise universal credit um, is still a bit of a mess, we'll get back to you about wait times. The fact that they didn't proactively do that shows there is a space for Labour to have a role. Um, and, you know, it is a, it, it's a bit of a, a cliche now, but the, there's no question that Labour are looking at this very idea that will Johnson be Churchill and then be followed by uh, a, a Labour leader like Attlee, who then wins the piece. Um, and, you know, it, it's it's a, a, co- a common claim now within Labour circles, amongst Labour MPs, certainly, that they can see a way for the first time of them not just waiting 10 years to get back in, but maybe get back in within five years. If not, It doesn't mean the government has to do disastrously in this crisis, but just that the questions are, are raised and the whole politics is viewed through the prison of having a credible alternative Prime Minister in Starmer. Let's take a deeper look at this piece of legislation which Parliament passed before rising the coronavirus bill, the 329 pages setting out these extraordinary powers which the government can now wield to tackle the crisis. Joe, can you just take us through what powers exactly the government has given itself? Yes. Well, I think there are three main categories of things the bill does. The first is that it temporarily relaxes or allows the government to relax some obligations on government and public bodies that already exist in law. So some of these are about the level of public services provided, such as social care. Some of these are about ensuring due process and and preventing human rights abuses. Things like the number of doctors needed to sign off um, under the Mental Health Act provisions things like how long fingerprints and DNA profiles can be kept for. And the main aim behind these measures is to relieve the burden on the government and public services when capacity will be stretched and where they may lack staff who are absent for coronavirus reasons. The second category is to give new powers to the government. Uh, So this is things like powers in relation to potentially infected persons, powers to limit gatherings and close businesses, things basically to enforce some of the lockdown measures that have been announced, or to close ports if there aren't enough staff to secure the borders. And then the third category is really some of the measures in response to the crisis. So this is things like changing statutory sick pay, uh, introducing video technology in the courts and measures to protect uh, business and residential tenants. So, uh, you know, a lot of things, they may not all come into action. The the government can switch them on or, or, or off. Hannah, are there historic precedents for powers on this scale? Well, the country's certainly seen sort of emergencies and and health emergencies in the past, and that's why there was already existing legislation on the statute book. Um, So we have the government already had uh, the Public Health Act 1984, which gave them uh, powers in in relation to a potential health emergency. And uh, the thing that's been talked about a lot is the Civil Contingencies Act, 
which also gives the, the government powers. It's interesting that the government decided it actually wanted slightly different set of powers at its disposal and thought it wanted uh, a new piece of primary uh, legislation. In some ways, um, I think uh, Shami Chakrabarti was saying to you uh, on, on the podcast the other day, it's quite useful to have these things all in one place so people can look at yes, it. Yes, I, I thought that was, that was a very interesting point that at least, uh, and particularly people who are uneasy about it, um, can look at it in one place about what's been switched on and switched off and not have to rummage through different bits of existing legislation. Exactly. Um, so we've got this one bill which sets it all out in one place and, and that means it will be slightly easier for people to scrutinise. But we know from history, without being cynical, that governments are kind of quick to give themselves these powers in emergencies and can be much slower to, to give them back. How, how reassured do you feel MPs are by this review process? Well, I think, you know, at the moment, while we're, the, the government is actually in the process of, of dealing with the crisis, um, everyone has sort of broadly come to a consensus that, you know, they've got to give the government what they need um, and t- try to keep track via these reports that the government will be making every eight weeks um, on what's being done. But I think MPs will be very cautious um, afterwards and will will rapidly start asking the government, um, actually, do you still need these powers? Um, if and when, as we all hope, um, the, uh, the pandemic sort of peaks in the UK um, and maybe the you know over the period of the next year or however long it takes, the government is able to relax some of the restrictions they've put on everyday life. I think MPs will be uh, there by whatever means, whether in, uh, physically in person or uh, via some digital t- technology, putting questions to the government to say, actually, do, do you still need to use these powers? Joe, do you think there's a possibility that the government might ask for more powers? Uh, one of the things it didn't ask for in this legislation was the power to extend um, uh, the transition period of Brexit, for example. That is true, and it is possible the government might have to come back. Um, at the moment, it has given itself you know, huge categories. And one thing it really stood out for me was the fact that the powers in this bill are so broad, covering all different aspects of uh, public services, bits of the economy, all sorts of areas of government activity. Um, it is possible there will be gaps. One of the risks of legislating so quickly is the fact that you miss things. And actually, a lot of the government amendments that we saw in the Commons were the government uh, coming back to the drafting because it had missed out things that might be a problem or it hadn't quite got things right first time. So we could see a bit of that. And the government has some flexibility in the Act to make small tweaks to the Act um, itself. But if it does want to do some of these bigger policy decisions like extending the transition period, we will need some more primary legislation to do that. Um, And so the government might have to come back and obviously it will need Parliament to be around in some form to be able to pass that additional legislation. And there may uh, be additional things that MPs raised about uh, the level of support available to different bits of the economy as well, which potentially might need more legislation as well. Paul, I want to just step back as we're coming to the, the, the end of this and just, just think about the sheer scale of all of this, um, which you've been writing about. You know, when you look at it, the government is shutting down whole swathes of national life, um, one after the other, telling everyone to stay at home, which and must for public health reasons, shut, shutting down essentially lots of companies and becoming the employer of, of last resort, at least for this temporary period. Do you get the sense we're looking at something that will profoundly change the way that we're governed? 
Well, it is a big question because, um, as you know, Peter Hennessy came out with this phrase that there'll, there'll be there'll be AC and BC before coronavirus and after coronavirus in, in our in the twenty first century. Uh, so he thinks it would that be that huge the social impact, the the, the economic impact too. Um, there's something in that. Um, certainly, ministers are careful to go that far. They feel as though that they want everybody to assume there will be a relatively quick bounce back in terms of the economy. Although I think this idea of a V-shaped curve is now being questioned by quite a lot of people. Um, the bounce back might not be as quickly as quick as people think. Um, the global situation, obviously, is, is what really matters. Um, it, we are certainly not an island when it comes to this disease. And, and, and you've, got, you've, got, you've, got, you've got some economists at least talking about a recession as deep as the 1930s. Precisely. That, that's the big, big fear. Uh, the other fear is obviously when you've got Trump in the White House, you know, the only thing that motivates him on an almost daily basis um, is what, what's happening to the stock market. So he will brag at great length about the stock market bouncing back for one day's returns and then will go very quiet when the, the stock market um, collapses again. So there's a real difficulty from the British point of view, just how to negotiate all that. I think in terms of the, um, just to briefly go back to that legislation, what's interesting about this this coronavirus bill is that it does put everything in one place, but that how many people knew that the 1984 Public Health Control of Diseases Act gave the Secretary of State the right to to ban handshaking, or for example, uh, that that's the legislation that's being used by the government, for example, to, to set the, the statutory instruments on the £30 fixed penalty notices that police are going to hand out in the coming weeks, you know, um, and that's... It's it's quite interesting that those powers already existed and few people realised they were there. As as to the the, the wider impact of this whole crisis, it, it's so unclear at the moment what it's going to mean in terms of the politics. It, it really does. When we get a new Labour leader in, then things will be slightly clearer. But I think everybody in Parliament is still trying to find their way around it. I, I think that's an entirely fair answer. There are so many things we we still don't know. I mean, you've got a big scientific disagreement out there between these what's now called the Oxford School and the Imperial College School, the uh, the optimist and the pessimist, if you like, about how how big this could be. And and you've got, I mean, it seems to be absolutely plausible that the Prime Minister talking about a test for antibodies uh, who's had the the virus uh, being a game changer, but we don't know when they'll get that test and if it will work in that way. And I think you're absolutely right that the politics then follows some of these realities, the shape of which we just don't know yet. So on that, and I don't normally like to end with uh, what we don't know, um, but in, the, in this in this case, there is an awful lot we we don't know. But I'm really grateful to the three of you for shedding some light on the things that we do know anyway about the um, emergency powers that this this government has got, and about this this really another extraordinary week in 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 Westminster and in the country. So thank you all very very much for joining me. Thank you, everyone, for listening. Remember to look out for our new sister podcast, IFG Live, where the debates, discussions and conversations that we'd normally have in our building are now going to be open to everyone via the miracle of podcasting. IFG Live will come out two or three times a week. So make sure you subscribe on Apple Podcasts so you don't miss one. And you can stream us on Spotify and Acast too. We at the IFG will do our best to keep everyone up to speed during the lockdown. And we really welcome your thoughts and questions. So please do tweet us or email us and visit our website to see what we're up to. Until then, keep your distance, except from us, and we'll see you for the next Inside Briefing.